And just one of the things that I want you all to notice as we come into this and, and as we read through this, and the reason that I chose it for our text this morning is that I'm hoping that you will see this as a crescendo that the entirety of the sermon and the service itself has been building towards. That so much of the sermon as we're going to go through is going to be highlighting and really reflecting upon the severity and the heinousness of our sin. But we are a people who have that hope at the end of the corridor, at the end of time. And we hopefully will be a people like Zechariah instead of our passage, the father of John the Baptist, that he proclaims praises to God for the coming of Jesus Christ. And so with that, this is Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 57, and I will read all the way through verse 80. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, you shall be called John. And they said to her, and they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, and you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. And then our second reading comes from our text in Ezra, as we'll be finishing up Ezra today, and we'll be reading the entirety of the chapter all the way through verse 44. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task and we are with you. Be strong and do it. 
And then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take oath that they should do as had been said. And so they took the oath. And then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehoanan, the son of Eliashib, where he spent the night neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem, and that if anyone did not come within three days, by order of the officials and the elders, all his property should be forfeited, and he himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. And then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. It was the ninth month on the twentieth day of the month, and all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have broken faith and married foreign women, and so increase the guilt of Israel. Now then, make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. And then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so, we must do as you have said. But the people are many, and it is a time of heavy rain. We cannot stand in the open. Nor is this a task for one day or for two, for we have greatly transgressed in this matter. Let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times, and with them the elders and the judges of every city, until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, the son of Asahel, and Josiah, the son of Tikva, opposed this, and Meshulam, and Shabbatai, the Levites, supported them. And then the returned exiles did so, as with the priests selected men, head of fathers' houses, according to their fathers' houses, each of them designated by name. And on the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to examine the matter. And by the first day of the first month, they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. Now there were found some of the sons of the priests who had married foreign women, Mahasiah, Eliezer, Jerob, and Gedaliah, some of the sons of Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and his brothers. They pledged themselves to put away their wives, and their guilt offering was a ram of the flock for their guilt. And of the sons of Emer, Hanani, and Zebediah. Of the sons of Harim, Maasiah, Elijah, Shemaiah, Jehiel, and Uzziah. Of the sons of Pashur, Elionai, Maasiah, Ishmael, Nethanel, Josabad, and Elisah. Of the Levites, Josabad, Shimei, Keliah, that is Kelita, Pathiah, Judah, and Eliezer. Of the singers, Eliashib. Of the gatekeepers, Shalom, Helem, and Uri. And of Israel, of the sons of Parosh, Ramiah, Isaiah, Malkijah, Nijamin, Eliezer, Hashabiah, and Benaiah, of the sons of Elam, Mataniah, Zechariah, Jehiel, Abdi, Jeremoth, and Elijah, of the sons of Zatu, Elioni, Eliashib, Mataniah, Jeremoth, Zabad, and Aziza, of the sons of Bibai, were Jehoanan, Hananiah, Zabai, and Atlai, of the sons of Bani, were Meshulam, Maluk, Adiah, 
Jashub, Sheol, and Jeremoth, of the sons of Pahat Moab, Adna, Sheol, Benaiah, Mahasiah, Mataniah, Bezalel, Benui, and Manasseh, of the sons of Harim, Eliezer, Ishajah, Malkijah, Shemaiah, Shimeon, Benjamin, Maluk, and Shamariah, of the sons of Hashum, Mataniah, Matata, Zabad, Elephelet, Jeremiah, Manasseh, and Shimei, of the sons of Bani, Maadi, Amram, Yul, Benaiah, Badiah, Chalui, Vania, Meramoth, Eliashib, Mataniah, Matanai, Jasu. Of the sons of Benui, Shimai, Shalamiah, Nathan, Adiah, Makadabadabai, Shashai, Sharai, Azarel, Shalamiah, Sheremiah, Shalom, Amariah, and Joseph. And of the sons of Nebo, Giel, Mattathiah, Zabad, Zabina, Jedi, Joel, and Benaiah. All these had married foreign women, and some of the women had even born children. This is the word of God. Let us pray together. Our Lord and our God, you have given us your word, your spirit, and all that we need for faith and life. I pray that you would illumine your word to the hearts of your people this day. I pray that you would help us to understand that it's not just the beginning of our lives that are dependent upon you, but that the day by day, second by second, sustaining of our lives is all according to your power and grace and justice and bringing all things according to your good and perfect purposes. Help us to learn from your servant Ezra this day that we might grow in our hatred of our sin and to turn to you in humble, childlike faith because of the work of our faithful Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray and to your glory. Amen. Now, this has been a rather unusual season for my family and I of getting to know you all. And there's many of you that we have not gotten to meet in person. I even just, uh, Mary Hamby was in the first service and I had met her before, and but mainly just seeing her online and, and just having trouble even with some of you of getting to know you a little bit better. And I know that that's something that's going to come in time. And we're going to learn wonderful, fascinating things about each other as we get to know each other. One of the things that you all will get to know as you get to know me better, and this applies somewhat to my wife as well, is that I love movies. And I love to see characters develop. I love to see a story progress to the point where you care about those characters. You care about them, these people that you knew nothing about just a short while earlier. Now, I say that in that my wife and I have very different perspectives on movies and really just kind of stories in general, but movies in particular. And many of you will probably agree with my wife more on this than you will with me, and, and I'm okay with that. And what I mean by that is that for my wife, when she wants to watch a movie, she sees it as an escape from reality, and therefore has really little interest in watching something that doesn't ultimately have a happy ending to it. Now, you contrast that with me, and I love to see a story, whether it's in a book or a movie or whatever it is, I want to see that story come to its logical conclusion. So if you have been building 
to a story that's going to have a sad ending or a happy ending or a conflicted ending or a conflicted ending, I want to see that come to its logical end. Now, to a certain degree, how my wife and I look at movies and really just narratives in general is kind of similar, isn't it, to how many of us view stories. We desire to place ourselves within the stories, within the lives of the characters, and we want to consider them through someone else's perspective. We desire to see justice dealt out equitably. We desire to mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice and see comfort brought to the hurting and the suffering. Ultimately, don't we all desire to have a happy ending to the story where all that has gone wrong is ultimately made right? Now, what's part of the reason why we want a happy ending to almost every story that we have? And I include myself in this. I still would love to have a happy ending, but you're going to progress it to that point. I want to see how the, you know, how the characters and everything are going to play out. But usually what's going on inside of our hearts for that is that we're looking at our own lives through these characters. And the things that we have trouble working through inside of our hearts, the tensions and the angst and the confliction, we don't know how to work through some of those things. And so, so often we look to TV shows and, and books and movies and all these other things because in so many ways we try to see ourselves in them. And what we're hoping for at the end of the day is we're hoping for the things that I can't quite work through inside of my heart and inside of my life, I want to see it there tangibly worked out in someone else's life. Probably to a certain degree, this is why so many people are so infatuated with celebrity culture. Now, as many of us know from our study of scripture, the story of the Bible is kind of this way as well. There's a constant weaving of all of these different storylines and emotions and heartbreaks while still at the same time always directing our gaze back to the author of that story and that he has promised or covenanted to bring about the happiest ending in all of history. And our text this morning really is no different as we come to the conclusion of this particular story and will likely come away with many mixed feelings and even a desire for more to be said. And that leads to that from everything that I've said to this point, it's not wrong at all to try to even sometimes inject ourselves into stories. That's not altogether bad, right? It's not altogether bad to see that the Bible itself is pointing us towards that, that God is actively at work in the redemption of his people. But here's the error that we so often make, and if I'm honest even about myself, many times even reading passages like we do at the end of Ezra, just kind of sitting inside the middle of the Bible, that we make assumptions, and the error that we make in the assumptions is that the story should end how I want it to end, exactly the way that I want it to end, all the means coming about that it would come about the way that I want it to come about. And after all, we see inside this story leading up to this point of Zerubbabel and Ezra coming in, reforming the worship of the people. We see even inside of chapter 3, great rejoicing that's going on. These people have been in exile for over 70 years at this point, And they're brought back and we're thinking, okay, there's been, there's been some, some sins that have happened. There's been some conflictions and all these other things. But ultimately, right, we're going to get a happy ending to the story. Surely the story is going to end with comfort and victory and celebration, right? That's the error that we make. 
that's not always the way that the Bible works. That's not always the narrative that's so often being told. And unfortunately, as we've read instead of our text this morning, this isn't entirely the case either. Instead, our text this morning is putting us face to face with the hurt and regret and guilt and pain that sin leaves us with. And instead of getting an ending, and instead of getting a happy ending to this story, instead we get a story with a lot of tension and a lot of angst. Our text presents us with a picture that is emblematic, even, of the effects and the daunting nature of sin. And getting this concept through that sin is never an isolated incident, but is like a cancer that spreads and spreads until the problem itself is so daunting, it seems like a web that we just can't seem to untangle. We wouldn't even know where to start if we could. And even as we, before we get into our passage here in just a second, one more point that I want to make with this, that as we have been going through Ezra, I want us to briefly pause and also see that this is not just a standalone narrative. But originally... Ezra was a part of a more fuller work called Ezra Nehemiah. And so really where we're at is we're about halfway through this particular story of this larger story that we're going through. And so I say that to prepare us for the fact that just as we end Ezra here, don't think that this is the only conflicted ending inside of the Bible, the only conflicted little postscript. But instead, this is going to come up just as much at the end of Nehemiah. And it's going to feel really high highs and really low lows. And we're going to, we're, at times, we're not even going to quite know what to do with all of this. It's important that we see that this tension is present even in Nehemiah. And also, to a certain degree, this is emblematic of the Christian life, isn't it? And really, just the story of God's redemption in general is most often a story of tension. It's most often a story of hurt and sorrow, and disappointment, but this is the big point, friends and brothers and sisters in Christ, that we cannot overlook or assume when we come to these types of narratives. We cannot assume that God is not good. We cannot assume that he is not sovereign over all of his creation, and that he does not hold every single beating heart in the palm of his hands, and is ultimately bringing all things about for his glory and for our good. But instead we're introduced to a narrative of fallen and sinful and rebellious people who are prone to rebel against their God who has restored them and redeemed them. This is a constant theme of the believer in Scripture as well that cries out time and time again, Whom have I in heaven but you, O God? Forgive me and restore to me the joy of my salvation for I'm helpless without you. In many ways, the Christian life is filled with joy, but it's a joy that so often, as we see even through the life of our Lord and Savior, is a joy that is learned through suffering, in the midst of suffering, and in the midst of the consequences of sin. And so with all that, laid as the groundwork, we enter into our text finally. And we pick up with this story with Ezra, who models for us this spirit of Psalm 51 when it says, A broken and a contrite heart, O Lord, you will not despise. Now I want us to go back for just a second to Ezra's prayer in Ezra 9 that we wouldn't forget it because 
Ezra's example and Ezra's posture and, and everything that we see inside of this character and individual that is going to, after this narrative, disappear from the story until chapter 8 of Nehemiah when he comes back to lead the people in worship once more. I want us to see inside of his prayer because his prayer provides so much of the thrust for the rest of this chapter of how it is that we should be working through what's going on, how it is that we should be thinking about the actions that are being taken by the people. And so inside of Ezra 9, beginning of chapter 6, I'm going to read, and so listen to Ezra's prayer again as we heard last week and consider it as we head into our text. Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you. My God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. But now, for a brief moment... Favor has been shown by the Lord our God to lead, to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O oh our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land that you're entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurities of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and, and have given us such a remnant as this, Shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any escape? O oh Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt for none can stand before you because of this. And we read in the beginning of chapter 10, while Ezra prayed and made confession and weeping and casting himself down before the house of God. In all of this, what's one thing that we maybe notice from Ezra's posture? We may expect him to act how we so often do in calling people to repentance, which is getting really loud, getting in people's faces, being very provocative, and thinking that if we just shake people enough that they'll awaken to their wrongs, that they'll, that they'll awaken to the things that they have wronged us in. But what we see instead of Ezra's prayer is that he makes confession before the God who has demonstrated his steadfast love and faithfulness. And we read that he weeps and casts himself down before the house of God. He's, his first inclination is not to jump 
and making these people do anything, but instead his heart is recognizing that God is sovereign, that God is the one who ultimately changes hearts, not our methods, not our methods. And even though sometimes the Lord does use some of those direct means to bring about repentance, may, us be, may we be reminded of that fact again, that what Ezra is demonstrating for us is that so often we feel like we can make the story have a happy ending. If they just thought the way that we thought, if they just did what we did, the way that we want to do it, then things would just turn out better. But Ezra, a man of God, gets down on his knees and says, Lord, forgive us. We were a wicked people that sinned against God and were cast out for 70 years and then brought back. And what have we done again? We've sinned again. Please, Lord, show mercy to us. And this really should be the posture of how we treat those that we pray for, for those loved ones who've perhaps gone astray or disappointed us or angered us, that we would trust the Lord to work in their hearts and to show grace and mercy the same way that he's shown grace and mercy to us. That is to be our posture. And we see this example of sorrow for sin and trusting in the Lord to be merciful present in the person of Ezra. And that should be our first inclination always to run to the Lord, as it even says in 1 Peter 5, cast all your cares upon him. But why do you do that? You do it because he cares for you. And so with all that, Ezra is making his plea to the Lord, and then we see a lone but not insignificant bright spot in this closing chapter. We see that Ezra's prayers have been answered and the people are convicted of their sin. Let's read it again where it says, he cast himself down before the house of God and a great assembly of men and women and children gathered to him out of Israel for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam addressed Ezra and said, we have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now, there is hope for Israel in spite of this. And we're going to camp out here for just a second because most prominently we see this person, Shechaniah, he doesn't come up anywhere else inside of the narrative. We don't really know much about him. We don't really know why he's speaking for the people. But the important thing here that we need to see is that he confesses before Ezra that the people have sinned against God and taking these foreign women to be their wives and that this is the evidence of God working in them. Let's just think about that for a second, of the entire history again of these people to this point. We think of the numerous prophets that God sent to his people, Jeremiah most particularly, the weeping prophet, and that he weeps as he calls out to his people and says, please repent. And do they repent? No. They become more hard-hearted and stuck inside of their sins and they are led away into 70 years of exile. And so what great news is this, that the Lord is working in their hearts to bring them to repentance. And they do it through the example of Ezra. They see Ezra before them and they go, oh my gosh, we messed up. We have done the exact same thing again. And we see even in Shechaniah something that I want us to shift our focus just a little bit here. 
that this is emblematic of the repentance of God's people that Shechaniah fundamentally remembers and understands the character of God. And I want us, and I'm going to turn with us just very briefly here to Exodus 34. And I think that this is a, a very nice layout of how it is that Shechaniah and the people of God understand what it means to have proper repentance. And again, this is going to help us understand the whole of the narrative to this point of why are they doing what they're doing. So just for a little bit of context here, in Exodus, the people have rebelled against God. Moses has destroyed the first set of tablets of the Ten Commandments, and we're left wondering, will God show mercy to his people? Beginning in verse 1, and I'll read it for you. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. And so Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. Now listen to this in verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed his name. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Pause right there for a moment. Let's look at Shechaniah here again, where he says, we have broken faith with our God. We have married foreign women, but there is still hope for Israel. Why is there hope for Israel? Because Shechaniah knows this about God, that God in, in, in all of who he is and in his character, he abounds in steadfast love and mercy and graciousness and kindness towards his people. He does not grow weary of loving his people. And that should fill us rightly with so much comfort that God is good. But there's a second thing that Shechaniah understood because he doesn't just say that. There's hope for us and then the, the narrative is just great from there. But instead, let's read right after that in Exodus 34. So he is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation, and Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped, and he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Did you pick up on that there? That the Lord is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, but he will by no means clear the guilty. And this leads us to a very uncomfortable portion of this section, and for some of us, maybe even offensive as we read it. And that question is, why is it that for this sin, do the wives and their children of these foreign people need to be put away or literally sent out from amongst the people, not dwelling with them. How could a good God demand something like this? Is a question that throughout the ages 
people will always ask themselves. But it's at this part, but this is part of why I said that many of us will leave this text feeling uncomfortable, but hopefully not confused. For this is the whole quandary around which this whole text rests, which is God's character and our sin, and that fundamentally the two cannot mix. It doesn't work. And as we read in Leviticus 19 and also inside the New Testament in 1 Peter 1, God's people were called to be holy. How? As God himself is holy. For God cannot dwell amongst, or even as we've been reading, tabernacling amongst his people, or the temple where God's presence would be. His presence fundamentally cannot dwell where unrighteousness dwells, where sin abounds, because God himself is thrice holy, holy, holy. That is the God that we worship. And so this is what it meant, this is what it means when it says in Exodus 34 that he will by no means clear the guilty. And what that means is he can't just wink his eye at sin because he's just and he's good. He can't just look on sin and just shove it under the rug. But our sin must be dealt with and satisfied in a legal way such that our sins are no longer regarded to our account. And we think for these exiles, and as with that they were called to be a set-apart people, but have you ever thought about why? Why are they called to be a set-apart people? They were called to be a set-apart people, as it said time and time throughout the Bible, that they would be a light to the nations, and that God would use this people to bring the nations to himself. And what do we see time and time and time again, that they fail in that. And that they've failed that here again too. They were called to be ambassadors. They were called to be that light shining on a hill that the nations would come and worship God as we read inside of Micah 4. That they would be reconciled to God through the work of the Messiah who we know to be ultimately found in the person, the work of Jesus Christ. And so I hope that we can see then that this sin of the people is heinous because this people, think about it, who had just come back from 70 years of exile. And the reason that they went into exile was because they were living just like the nations, marrying with them, getting power structures with them, having kings over them. They wouldn't repent. They're sent out. And that this people no sooner is restored by God that they had literally wed themselves to the world once more. And I hope that that's something that we'll get a little bit, that it wouldn't take us 70 years to understand that, but that we would get the, heinous, the heinousness and the seriousness of our sin. And so I hope also that when we see texts like this, that we would not dare to look at God and say that this is a racist God or this is a xenophobic God in any sense of the word, but instead that we would see a God who is altogether holy, altogether righteous, altogether good, and it's contrasted with a people who are depraved, rebellious, unrighteous, and derelict of duty. And that in everything that they were called to do, that they failed in that. And that instead what we see is God entering in time and time again sovereignly to accomplish that salvation of his people. And so therefore we see Shechaniah's reasoning in verse 3, is good reasoning. He understands God, but it demands a very hard solution. 
He's right to see that there's hope for Israel in spite of this because God in his very nature is abounding in steadfast love and forgiveness. We can even think of Psalm 30 again that his wrath is but for a moment, but his favor is for a lifetime. We have texts over and over again that abound in this. But may we remember this, friends, but God will never, ever, ever forgive at the cost of his holiness. Or thus he would no longer be just and no longer be righteous. And so therefore we need to be his people. And these needed to be a people who recognized their sin, hated their sin, and literally removed it from their midst. And so we can see this angst and this pain, even all the way, verses 3, all the way through 17 to this point of agonizing along with them. Why does it have to be this way? Why does it have to be this way? But beloved, this is the consequences of sin. And we so often act as if God is just obligated to roll with the punches of our faulty reasoning and our decision making. But scripture reminds us time and time again that God's holiness takes precedent over our feelings and our actions every time without exception. And this leaves us with the ever uncomfortable reality that sin cannot just be simply shuffled around. It can't just be winked at. It can't just be ignored. It can't just be shoved under the rug. And especially, it doesn't mean that we get to keep the things that we hold dear, that we attain by sinful means. That's what these people had done. They had literally formed families out of sinful means. And so then I hope at this point, for many of us, we probably are brought to tears, not for the reading of the names, in verses 18 through 44, but for how long that list is. And that it just keeps going and going and going. And we see that even the Levites, the priestly line among God, amongst God's people, that they had taken for themselves foreign wives, even the representatives of the people are messing this up. And so we finish that last line. All these who had married foreign women and some of the women had even born children. And we look and we go, that's how the story ends? That's it? What do I do with that? And it almost seems like this, again, web. How do, how do I even begin to untangle that? It's the whole of the people that are sinful. But we see, beloved, now we make another turn. It's exactly at this place that we begin to understand how it is that God ordinarily works in the lives of his people. Because, friends, it's not the Israelites or us that are the heroes of the story. But fundamentally, these people serve to hold a giant mirror in front of our face that shows us our ineptitude, that shows us how weak we are. And now for the one who's looking to themselves for daily comfort, looking to themselves to muscle it through life. This doesn't really seem too, too reassuring, does it? Seems hopeless, because you're telling me that I am inept. You're telling me that I'm not able to save myself. I'm not able to not sin outside of God's grace. But for those who have ears to hear and eyes to see by the Spirit's enabling, we see the good news of the gospel shining through the darkness in all of its glory that though all we like sheep have gone astray, as it says in Isaiah 53. 
And though every one of us has turned to his own way, we have the hope of Shechaniah and every other believer throughout history that there is a sure hope for us and a sure hope for God's people. Because God himself is for our griefs. And like a sheep that before its shearers was silent, he didn't open his mouth. But he bore our sins and accomplished our salvation mightily and triumphantly. And so then, for our text that we had instead of Luke 1, hopefully we can see that with new eyes, enlightened and brightened eyes, all the more that Zechariah and all of God's people rejoice that the sin of the people is dealt with fully and finally with the coming of this one, Jesus Christ, that we read again that he has come, as Zechariah says, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet in the way of peace. This is the work of Christ for us. And so though our particular story may end here on somewhat of a sour note and it may not be the ending that we want it to be, and that doesn't sit well with us, because we want to be in control of everything. And in one sense, we want to tell God how to write his own story. And though so much of life itself is still hard and is still filled with sufferings because of our sin, we have that enduring and lasting hope that God didn't leave us, that God will never forsake us. That the story will not end in sin and misery, but instead will have the happiest ending of all. Where every tear will be wiped away and sin will be no more. Sin is present now. The power of sin has been taken away by the work of Christ. And someday there won't even be the presence of it. And that's the hope that God's people have to look to, not Israelites, not Western American Christians, not a movement, but we have a sovereign and mighty God that we will see face to face and we will be happy in his presence forevermore. And beloved, these comforts are for you and they're not from me, but they're from God himself. And so may we press on as repentant, justified sinners eagerly longing for that day, pressing on as good and faithful soldiers. Let's pray together. Our God and Father in heaven, thank you that you have condescended to our weakness and have revealed yourself and have saved us to yourself through the work of Christ and the abiding of your Holy Spirit. May we rest in you this day by faith, waiting patiently and hopefully for your coming again. Preserve us, we pray, and be gracious to us. And it's in your mighty name that we pray. Amen.